1: Hello and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio. I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on today's show. Can innovation help promote peace?
2: At some point in time, the climate will be changed in a positive momentum that will drive also the political leaders to understand there's no reason to fight on the land when the source of greatness is coming from the mind.
1: And malaria is no longer in decline. What can be done to revive the fight?
3: It's basically to take a more granular approach instead of uh, going after the easy things, such as just purchasing bed nets.
1: But first, the founders of Google are stepping down from the top roles at Alphabet, its parent company, Larry Page and Sergey Brin founded the web giant in a California garage over 20 years ago. Now they say it's time to assume the role of proud parents offering advice and love, rather than daily nagging. So what does this mean for one of the world's most important companies? Our technology editor, Tim Cross, is here to give us an update. Hello, Tim. Hi, Ken. Tim, what do you think is behind this?
4: Well, the official reason is that, uh, as you say, they just think it's it's sort of time to call it a day. So uh, in 2015, they restructured the company. They created Alphabet, which is this, this sort of holding company, and Google theoretically sits under it, and then all the other things that they've been uh, interested in. So that's everything from life sciences to trying to deliver Internet by balloon. They all sit separately. And then if you read their statements uh, now, they say, well, look, this company has basically too many managers. So a guy called Sundar Pichai, who's a lifelong Googler, he's been in charge of Google for quite some time now. And the idea is the whole firm, all of Alphabet, they say would be better with one person in charge. So in a way, it's, it's sort of reversing the restructuring they did a few years back. Or maybe it's cementing it. I mean, you know, this is the sort of official reason. There might be other reasons. Um, We know that Larry Page, for instance, has had uh, health problems in the past. He's had problems with his vocal cords, which – and he's been unable to speak at some points, which makes it maybe, you know, hard to do management. Um, And a lot of people will say they've seemed a bit kind of disconnected from the company anyway. You know, they haven't turned up to to annual meetings. You don't see them around – the offices as much as as they used to. And it might be that, you know, these guys are sort of nerds at heart. And it might be that after 20 years of the grind, I guess, of managing, you know, a big company of the business side of things, the money, the HR, they're just, you know, less interested than they were and and keen to go and do something else.
1: Now, Google is an engineering company at heart. And most of its problems now are not engineering problems, but actually political ones. So one can actually see why they might see this as a moment of evolution But let's take a moment and think about the engineering prowess that gave rise to Google in the first place. The history.
4: Yeah, so it's the classic Silicon Valley story in a way. You know, the company was incorporated in 1998. It was based on some academic work that um, Larry Page and Sergey Brin had been doing at Stanford. And this was the dawn of the World Wide Web. And for all of the listeners, uh, you're sort of too young to remember that. You know, back in the day, there weren't really search engines. The original World Wide Web was a collection of pages. They were indexed by hand. Uh, the master index was kept on a server at CERN in Europe, the particle physics lab, where, you know, the World Wide Web was was invented. Google came up with one, particular way of doing this, an algorithm called pagerank and the way that worked was by assuming that if a web page has lots of links pointing to it elsewhere on on the web and those links are from you know other big important websites, then the website is probably important so it was kind of an automated way to try and rank or get some idea of what users were looking for when they typed text into the search box. And in one of those interesting connections that you often turn up in the history of technology, one of the influences uh, that they cite on PageRank was another algorithm called RankDex invented by a guy called Robin Lee. Robin Lee would go on to found Baidu, which of course is China's big search engine.
1: That's absolutely incredible. Now, Google is also known for something else, and that is a new way of managing highly innovative and creative people. They were able to grow but also keep a sort of startup mentality at heart. Initially, it was with the 20% time that people could actually do things, their own little pet projects on the side. Gmail, for example, came out of a 20% time project. What about the influence of Google in the valley?
4: Yeah, that's right. And I mean, in fact, the founders were famous for saying, look, we don't want to build an, an ordinary company. And as you say, you know, some of that is fripperies. So you have you know, the beanbags and the volleyball games and the pinball machines and whatever. But Google, at least uh, in the old days, the, the style kind of went deeper than that. For a long time, the company was motivated internally by more than just you know, a quest for, for profit and growth.
1: OK. And what about inside the company? How's morale?
4: It's hard to know for certain, but it doesn't seem as good as it once was. So we've had uh, protests over, for instance, um, Google was thinking about getting back into the Chinese search market with a censored version of its search engine, and that caused a revolt among its workers. And we've just had a case where some people who were uh, fired by Google have taken it to the American authorities claiming they were fired unjustly. There have been uh, you know, anti-union drives, all that kind of thing. So I think you know, as it's become a bigger company, it's become maybe more like a conventional company, and it's it's proving a bit harder to keep the troops morale up.
1: Now I wonder what it means for Google going forward. Of course the owner of a business can actually do things that the salary man CEO cannot.
4: Yeah, and we should say as well that you know despite that sort of freewheeling culture pretty early on they decided actually we need a couple of adults to sort of supervise this room. So they hired um, Eric Schmidt and then the the current CEO, Sundar Pichai. His job is to be kind of the grown-up around here. And as the company's got bigger and bigger, it's been harder to keep that sort of relaxed style going.
1: But they could make decisions at the snap of a finger that it would take other bosses, a committee, to do. So, for example, in the case of the Skype acquisition that Microsoft ended up buying, when it was vetted in front of Google by managers, the founders just looked at it, realized that it was on a different technical platform and their own technology, realized it would be madness to buy it because they'd have to rewrite the code anyway. And they just simply said, this is BS and walked out of the room, leaving the people giving the presentation dumbfounded, wondering what to happen next.
4: Yeah. And I mean, this is the downside of that kind of, uh, you know, theoretically horizontal management structure. As you say, in reality, the founders retain a whole load of power. And, you know, that that may be plays into one of the other things that Google's done. You know, it's, it's basically the firm is an advertising company. It's a very, very successful advertising company. And yet the two founders have kind of siphoned some of that money off from the fountain and chucked it at a whole load of uh, what are called other bets. And it's maybe been a little bit difficult to try and figure out what the strategy is with a lot of those other bets rather than just, hey, this is a cool thing that's sort of vaguely related to technology. So we've had, you know, genetic sequencing. We've had uh, self-driving cars. We've had Project Loon, which is this idea of, you know, broadcasting internet to everyone around the world using thousands of high-altitude hot air balloons. And, you know, pretty much all of them have failed or lost money. And you kind of have to wonder if a a more traditional, more buttoned-down company might not have been quite so gung-ho about pursuing all these things.
1: OK, but there's another side to the argument, of course.
4: Yeah, and and that's, you know, if you have this money, why not spend it on what they call moonshots? It's almost the sort of the venture capital model. You expect 90% of your investments to go nowhere, but the 10% that do go somewhere, you know, are still worth making. In order to succeed, you have to fail a bunch of times.
1: Will their influence still loom large if they're still on the board and still a significant shareholder?
4: Well, this is the crucial question. So they say they're stepping back, but of course they retain uh, a majority of, of of the shareholding rights. They have special a special class of shares and they have you know, ultimately control over the company. So it is kind of an, an interesting and open question. How much leash are they really going to give Sundar Pichai? If he starts to take the company in a direction they fundamentally disagree with, what's going to happen then? There are interesting precedents here. So you know, when Bill Gates left Microsoft – eventually he did seem able to kind of properly let go of the company a bit and you saw it reinvent itself towards the the sort of tail end of the the 2000s the early end of this decade and we'll just have to wait and see if uh, Paige and Bryn are you know really willing to let the kid wander off on its own.
1: Tim thank you very much. Thanks Ken. Next up. Why is it that the most innovative thinkers and businesses all seem to cluster in particular hubs around the world? Think Cremona in the 17th century for violin making, or today Israel, often called the startup nation. And where else can innovation thinking go beyond science and technology? Can it shake up other areas of society? One person who's been thinking a lot about this is Chemi Perez. He's a veteran venture capitalist and now the managing partner at Pitango, Israel's largest venture capital firm. He's also the chairman of the Perez Center for Peace and Innovation, named after his father, Shimon Perez. He joins me in the studio now. Welcome, Chemi. Now, peace and innovation are not words that typically appear next to each other. How are they connected?
2: Basically, when you think about it, these two words are describing different two sides of one coin, which is the coin upon which you invest in the future. If you want your country to be successful and strong and grow, you need to do two things. You need to seek peace between yourself and your surrounding neighborhood. And at the same time, you need to advance technologically. Now, the two of them cannot coexist unless they walk together. So if a country like Israel is scaling very quickly into a new age of science and technology and the Middle East region is lagging behind, there will not be a tomorrow that people around the region can share. So you have to advance on these two sides of the same coin. You have to live in peace. You have to create a tomorrow for all. But then you also have to advance very fast in technology. So how do you actually do that? What practical examples do you have?
1: of how you actually can fuel peace and innovation joined at the hip.
2: So we are in a transition from land to mind. Uh, When you look at the United States and when you look at China, you see that the greatest companies today are technology companies, not earthy companies. It's not oil and gas and chemical and construction and banking. It's data and software and artificial intelligence and soon new technologies. It is happening in the United States. It is happening also in China. The dream was that, and still is, that the Middle East, where you have 400 million people, where 60% of them are below the age of uh, 30, can create their own internet market, Arabic speaking internet market, that will allow companies to scale just like the scale in China. Now, in order to advance the Middle East, you need two things. You need global enterprises to enter the region and invest in the region and drive it forward. And at the same time, you need the engine of entrepreneurship and innovation scale up from bottom up. What we try to do is reach out to our neighbors and seek joint projects around entrepreneurship and innovation. So the Palestinians and the region can move forward into this new era of science and technology.
1: So what are some of the examples of how you've worked with the Palestinians?
2: So there are different uh, programs that we embark on in addition to the traditional projects that we have to bring people to people. Traditionally, we do it in sports and healthcare. We do it in business and environment. Now we do it in different programs like starting up together. We Jews and Arabs start businesses together or social entrepreneurship together. We do it through helping them set up incubators and sponsor entrepreneurship. We do it by introducing uh, engineers from the Arab world into global enterprises and Israeli enterprises, providing work opportunities. So when you think about the ability of young people to come together and build something together, then they can change the future.
1: How do you measure success? Because also this seems like these are very project-based. And of course, you don't want to always be in the business of planting acorns. You want to actually see the tree grow by itself.
2: Absolutely. At the end of the day peace will be done between governments. We are not a political platform. What we do is we reach out to the young entrepreneurs and we tell them the following. You have to dream. You have to believe in your ability to change the future. There's nothing you can do about the past. If you come together and there will be more and more participants then at some point in time the climate will be changed in a positive momentum that will drive also the political leaders to understand there's no reason to fight on the land when the source of greatness is coming from the mind. So let's work together and let's collaborate. There's so much threats and risks that we as society are facing together. We can deal with it only together.
1: You're in a part of the world that is very fatalistic about things, yet you come from an environment which is very sunny and optimistic technology. So what do you say to the cynics who look at what you're doing and think of peace and innovation and say, give me a break?
2: I'll tell him what my father used to say, which is optimist and pessimist die the same way, but they live different lives. So you'd rather live as an optimist. If you are an optimist, you take action. You push forward. You try to cross a desert to reach uh, a destination. You have to be resilient, and you have to make sure that you work very hard and make sure that good things happen. That's what we try to do at the Paris Center for Peace and Innovation. We believe in doing good and working hard, and we're touching the lives of tens of thousands of people initially, and now with the innovation programs, we're reaching many more people through the internet and through our programs. And we believe that what we do is very impactful. As a matter of fact, we are measuring what we are doing every year.
1: Now, some listeners might not know who your father was.
2: My father was uh, prime minister and president of the state of Israel, a Nobel Peace Prize laureate, he was um, the one that initiated the Oslo Accords to create peace between Israel and Egypt. He was the builder of the Israeli defense capabilities. Uh, he was one of the founders of the state of Israel. He was the father of the startup nation in many ways, a great leader, a great visionary.
1: He was also a very nice man. I and a of...
2: very nice, brilliant uh, and curious man. Yeah,
1: I agree. My final question to you is that your center is looking at peace in your country and your region. Do you think that this model of peace and innovation can go more broadly? And if so, what would be the ripest place for it to go?
2: Our dream is that uh, the Paris Center for Peace and Innovation, which is operational in Israel, will soon attract about 200,000 visitors from around the world. People are inspired by what we do, and we have a lot of discussions with different people around the world to form peace and innovation centers around the world and actually inspire and educate the young generation about the opportunities of tomorrow. We plan in the next decade to open at least 10 centers around the world. Prime locations would be, of course, China, uh, the United States, uh, certain areas in Europe. Our dream, of course, is to reach the Arab world as well. Africa, Latin America. We are in discussions with many people around the world. We signed our first agreement with uh, the city of Chicago. You're a technologist. You're going for global growth right off the bat. Absolutely. Well, you have to be global uh, from day one. If you don't innovate for the world, it, it doesn't really uh, matter. I mean, at the end of the day.
1: Jaime Perez, thank you so much for coming in.
2: Thank you so much.
1: And finally, at one point, it looked like malaria might soon be a disease of the past. From 2000 to 2014, the numbers of cases and deaths fell steadily. But the latest report from the World Health Organization suggests otherwise. Malaria is no longer declining, and it remains a threat to millions. In 2018, there were 228 million cases of the disease, over 90% of them in Africa. So why have measures to tackle the illness stalled? The economist Slaveya Chankova is here to tell us more. Hello, Slavea. Hello, Ken. So first, talk us through the numbers. How big a problem is malaria?
3: It is a big problem. It's one of the biggest killers, uh, especially of young children. Uh, it's also very dangerous for pregnant women. So those are the two groups which are particularly a danger of malaria. Unfortunately, uh, the trends in malaria, uh, which we've seen for almost a decade, are no longer holding up. So since about 2014, there has been a leveling off of uh, mortality for malaria and malaria infections as well. So the progress that the world was making for uh, quite a long time is no longer happening. So what was working then that's not working now? It's really difficult to tell what happened. I mean, part of the problem is... um, the money that is needed uh, to keep beating malaria back is not there. So there was a global malaria elimination strategy drawn up in 2015, which called for about $6 billion a year to be spent on malaria control efforts. However, spending has been more like $3 billion, so half of what's needed. And it's very easy to blame problems like lack of money. However, there is also uh, lots of uh, inefficient spending in malaria control.
1: What kind of inefficient spending?
3: So national malaria control programs tend to use a pretty uniform approach across the entire country. So even though rates of malaria as well as uh, seasonality may vary quite a bit uh, between urban and rural areas. The first thing that is usually done is malaria control programs just bombard the entire country with bed nets, which are very effective in preventing malaria, but they're quite unnecessary in some places. So in big cities like Nairobi or Dar es Salaam, there is uh, very little malaria, so it's wasteful to spend on bed nets there. Instead, that money could go on other things that are necessary in um, places that have a lot more malaria, such as periodic treatment with preventive medication, which is uh, often given to children. In peak malaria season. So they would just get this medication a couple of times during the two or three months when malaria is at peak, which will prevent them from falling sick if they get bitten by malaria carrying mosquito.
1: So what explains the fetish over bed nets if they're not effective everywhere?
3: They are the darlings of foreign aid agencies. And that's because they're very easy to count. And when it comes to foreign aid, everybody wants to see, you know, what they're achieving with their money. And it's very easy to say, you know, we've purchased so many millions nets. When it comes to less tangible results, that are more difficult to attribute to a particular donor's money. They tend to fall a little bit down the list of that donor's priorities. And that matters because two-thirds of spending on malaria is in the form of foreign aid or from foreign charities.
1: Now, some places are doing better than others in addressing the problem. What are the successful ones doing that the ones lagging behind can learn from?
3: In this year's report, there are two countries that stand out, which have had dramatic reductions in malaria cases from 2017 to 2018. And those countries are Uganda and India. What they have done is they have used this very customized approach uh, to malaria prevention at subnational levels. So they have pretty much moved away from the one-size-fits-all approach that most countries are still using. And that's one of the reasons why they have been more successful. In many other countries, the number of malaria cases have actually gone up.
1: So if you had any counsel to the foundations who are actually putting lots of money into this, what would you tell them to do?
3: It's basically to take a more granular approach and then put their money towards that instead of uh, going after the easy things, such as just purchasing bed nets and leaving it there. That's great. Slavea, thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. And
1: that's all for this edition of Babbage. And now we want to hear from you. We want to know what you think about our podcasts. Visit economist.com slash podsurvey to let us know your thoughts. That's economist.com slash podsurvey. I'm Kenneth Couquier and in London, this is The Economist.